You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. And as a reminder, all the links for this show, the topics we discuss, as well as the links I've already mentioned, are available on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Sergey Egorov of Atomic Jar. He's the CEO and co-founder at Atomic Jar and is a part of the Test Containers community. If you haven't heard of Test Containers, it started with a Java way to program inside your Java language, basically to control Docker for the purposes of spinning up a bunch of containers for testing. And so it kind of was the opposite approach of what a lot of us take. And a lot of developers turned out to like it that way, where they were using native code to create their test environments rather than trying to fit something like Docker Compose or some other external testing tool into their existing code. I think it's a pretty interesting approach. So we go through the different options you have, which languages are supported, how you get started, what are some of the ideal conditions for how to use test containers, and what are some of the real big benefits, like spinning up Elasticsearch with a couple of lines of code, which is not that easy to do if you've done it recently on the later versions. And recently, Sergey announced with the Atomic Jar startup about Test Containers Cloud. And we'll also talk about what that is and what it might do for you if you're interested in using the Test Containers project. Please enjoy this episode with Sergey Igorov. Hello, happy holidays and welcome to the show. Hi, Brad. Happy to talk about your not the most favorite topic, testing and containers. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, I, I, I know testing is necessary. I have mm -hmm. to do it all the time. I sometimes am excited, but a lot of time it's just, it means that I have more work to do because it's always finding all the problems. I have a love-hate relationship is what maybe I should say. Sure, it's not the first time I hear about it. Testing is what proves that we were wrong sometimes, and then nobody likes to be proven wrong. So yeah, yeah I can definitely yeah. understand that one. For sure. And for those that haven't seen Sergey before around, he is the CEO and co-founder at Atomic Jar, and they're the company behind Test Containers. So if you've heard of the Test Containers project, it's not a new thing. It's been around a while. But he's also a Java champion, an Apache committer, a Docker Java maintainer. I'm assuming that's the image, right? The Docker Java image. It's library. Oh, the library. Library. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that. And then I used to be an engineer at Pivotal and, uh, slash VMware, and he's moved now to the startup. And so it's kind of exciting. This year, I feel like this is a theme. We have the startup theme this year where we're having a bunch of little, I'd say little teams, teams less than hundreds on mm -hmm. the show to talk about the ideas, almost like this is maybe the second or third wave of container tech, I feel like. Do the initial Docker and mm -hmm. Kubernetes back in 2014 were the original sort of wave of what a container means. And we've had a lot of stuff happen over the years, but now I feel like we've got our stride going and we got some cool projects like this. So tell us about your background and how you even got to Atomic Jar. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, originally I'm from Russia, by the way, from the code part, and I've been a developer my whole life. So yes, I have this CEO title, but that's something new I'm learning very, very, very fast because I kind of have to. Developer started in game development, spent there seven years before I transitioned on, onto backend development and started doing some serious Java. I wasn't Java developer my whole life, or my whole career at least. And um, yeah, it was a fun adventure of various companies uh, in my life start game development is always fun it's always deadline is yesterday but uh, a lot of pressure comes with a lot of fun when you deliver and uh, seeing all these players uh, happy with your product is amazing but then figured that devtos or more like product development is more of my thing and I've been jumping from one company to another from one country to another spent four years in estonia and four years in germany now i'm in the united states in new york city and uh, yeah, as you already said before starting Atomic Jar, I was at uh, Pivotal and then Pivotal got acquired by VMware and started thinking what my next thing will be. And I didn't know that my next thing will be my own thing, but here we are. <laughs> well, 
it's funny because you don't sound like you're from New York City, but you're only hours away. So I'm down in Virginia. And mm-hmm. the next time we ever get a real a live conference, I used to go to New York City for O'Reilly's Velocity Conference, I think mm-hmm. is what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I don't even think they're planning on going back to the real world conferences. So that's a sad thing. Yeah. But that was one of my excuses okay. to come down to Manhattan. So we wouldn't have been too far apart. OK, so mm-hmm. you're now at Atomic Jar. Now tell me about the, the Test Containers Project. How did mm-hmm. that, how and when did that get started? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't started by me. This is a very important thing because sometimes people are confused, but it was started by my co-founder, Richard Norse from the UK. And six years ago, Richard was a Deloitte, um, Deloitte Digital in Japan, okay. not in the UK, because he spent some time in Japan. And he had his um, own H to scratch, basically. He was struggling with testing and he was struggling with uh, how to set up all these testing environments because unit testing wasn't an option, just like not an option at all because you need to test all these fancy SQL queries you write and you cannot just assume that what you wrote will execute correctly. But before Docker, testing in general was painful, integration testing, because you had to start technologies yourself, like I don't download something from, I don't know, if you need to start Oracle, we go to oracle.com, you download Oracle installer, you install it, it go through next, 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 done. Then you need to configure something and it was painful. And then you need to do it on every machine where you want to run your test, which isn't very scalable and leads to people running with a CD and asking everyone to install the right. same copy of the database. But six years ago, uh, Docker was gaining its momentum. And as you, I'm sure, remember, six years ago, Docker wasn't the most popular technology yet. It was just gaining its traction and um, right. It wasn't even in production in many companies uh, as compared to today, but people started realizing that, okay, Docker is a great abstraction. And then many great things can be done with Docker, the abstraction and the tooling. And uh, that was what's on Richard's uh, mind. He figured that Docker is also a great abstraction for testing. And while some other Docker testing solutions were focused on spinning up environments like uh, real environments, let's say something like Docker Compose, or back then it was Fig, and I still remember Fig, and I still yep. prefer the shirt Fig over Docker <laughs> dash uh, Compose. But okay, you have the Fig alias on your computer still. I'm no longer using Docker Compose at all, and we can okay. talk about it later. But then one of the options was to describe everything in this single YAML file, and uh, everyone loves YAML, right? So you were good to go. People were writing YAML even before Kubernetes. His idea was that why would they write some YAML files? If I'm a developer and as a developer, what, and you also need to start them separately. You need to do this uh, fig up, fig down before and after running your tests. While tests are already code and one can easily, you know, like do many things from code, from tests. And that was the idea. Why don't we talk directly to Docker instead of uh, relying on some other tool? And why don't we start containers directly from tests? And it was a simple idea based on the fact that Docker exposes APIs that everyone can talk to. And the idea led to test containers, the project that he created, open source project, that ever since then became an extremely popular solution for integration testing because of its simplicity. Because it's been six years since the project got created and it never got changed. It's the same idea of starting containers from your tests. And while Docker Compose, let's say, a based approach was the idea was that everything, including the application, would be started as part of the setup. Usually, test containers took a linear approach where only dependencies that are required to start your service would be started from your tests. So you can think of Kafka, Postgres, MySQL, RabbitMQ, Selenium, and what's not. All these technologies that are currently available as Docker images can also be started with test containers and you'll find a list of modules on the left side with an always growing set of modules that are being added, including the generic ones, if something is not supported yet. And it led to a new idea of dev-focused integration testing, where developers would write tests, integration tests, would control everything from their tests with code without any QA involved. And it also creates a this linear approach where only necessary dependency, but not the whole infrastructure is being started from your test. That's right. test containers in longer than 
five seconds, but <laughs> hopefully it's okay. <laughs> no, it, I think it's. I think that's a great, maybe not an elevator pitch, but that's a great description. Mm -hmm. Let's just pretend that everyone in the world tests their code for a minute. For a minute, yeah, they all should. But I, I'm still surprised by how many people I run into that uh, have production business code that they didn't need to write tests for because mm, yeah. you know they're good. So this is creating containers for me, right? Through my whatever I'm used to in mm -hmm. the, the testing infrastructure that I'm using, or does this provide me like new commands? I see that there's a list here on the GitHub, and it seems clear that one of the things I need as a developer to get started is I need to pick my language and it needs to be one you support. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. It's not an external tool, but rather a library for your language of choice. Yeah. And we are uh, growing the selection of languages that currently support it. Not every language is here. Like, for example, .NET thing is not mentioned on the PNET repos, but it is there. In fact, there are multiple versions of .NET, but we, we can talk about it later. But what we try to do, we try to cover every possible language or every popular language because test containers isn't a Java-specific thing. It's just the approach for integration testing directly from your test. And it does not depend on a particular language. Just as long as you can write tests with your test framework of choice, then that can be test containers implementation. Okay, so what does this save me time on? Let's say today, I'm gonna think of a typical project I'm on, right? Like they have Docker files in their directory, they have a compose file to spin up local environments. Mm -hmm. And then every one of those teams, let's say it's a, a Node.js team, right? They're running NPM commands, they probably have an NPM test command and, and that does stuff on their local machine, but not in the containers. So then what we would normally tell them is well, start up Docker Compose and then exec into the container or do a Docker Compose run. And then you're gonna run the NPM test commands in the container. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through like from a workflow perspective, how does this act differently for me? And I'm assuming it alleviates the need for me to even have a Compose file and I can just do this in code. Yep, it is indeed how you described. You don't need Docker Compose file because, I mean, you can use test containers with Docker Compose as a module, but we recommend not to because of the alternative approaches we provide, the model we provide for writing your tests. And the idea is that we take a step back. Instead of running everything in a container, you would continue running your tests from your ID of choice or mm -hmm. with your tool like npm uh, run test, for example. Your tests will run on the same machines and you can debug, you can, uh, you know, like, Put breakpoints and do whatever you want. But then everything that is needed to start your service, you can think of these external dependencies. And you cannot start your service for tests without them. Like you, you need Kafka to start your uh, service that depends on Kafka. These will be started with test containers. And what's, I believe, even more important is that they will also be uh, terminated after you finish running your tests, which is an extremely important thing because dangling containers in CI environments and even local environments is an actual problem. And uh, people do not realize that I think one of the biggest values of test containers isn't starting containers, but actually stopping them, always stopping them. Yeah, the cleanup, it's kind of like day two ops that we talk about in the DevOps community of all the demos and everything is always about getting stuff set up or getting it configured. Mm -hmm. but. What do you do on day 255? That's the more complicated problem. And I feel, yeah, like you're saying, especially with local, one of the things that I typically do in my own environments, or I have to, regardless whether it's got Docker or Container D, is you always got to enable garbage cleanup. And then for some weird reason, I've always wished that the Docker engine just had like an option that just says, eh, on a daily basis, just delete all images that, that don't have a container on them. Just, cl just clean up all this stuff that I've downloaded. Haven't they added something like that a year or two ago? No, there's a command. So you can do prune commands, but you still have to remember to do them. Like you have mm -hmm. to make it a muscle memory of, okay, prune, mm -hmm. Docker image prune, Docker system prune. And then it gives you a bunch of options and questions that you're not really sure about. I think I have an example in a repo of mm -hmm. like in a swarm cluster, basically running a container that hooks to the Docker engine basically through the mm -hmm. socket to run that prune command. And it's just a bash loop. It basically says that wait a day, <laughs> sleep a day, run this command, then sleep another day. And mm -hmm. that is, if you look at the complaints, it's funny you're hitting on this and I'm just going on and on about it. But yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot of complaints still about just 
images, not just containers, obviously containers take up CPU and all the other stuff too, but just the image problem itself, because it's like how we all used to download software 20 years ago and we would store it on our computer in like a downloads directory because that's how we would have to install Mm -hmm. Winamp or Dreamweaver (laughs) or whatever the old software Mm -hmm. was that we were using. And we always had to keep an uninstall file because we weren't sure if it was, we may not have internet, the internet was slow. And that's kind of what images are today is they're all hanging around. They're on your system forever. You may never use them again. You have 10 versions of Node because of all the patch versions and we need cleanup. So yes, let me get back to your point. Before you get back to your point, I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about this one because image cleanup, or not image cleanup, but like general cleanup, isn't something that we had rock solid until we added a thing to task containers that makes it superior to any other option, actually, such as running just Docker run from a CLI, for example, or Docker compose or anything else. We had this issue reported by the users that they have dangling containers and they're like, okay, what happened? And we're like, we don't know what happened. At the end of your test session, we are supposed to delete the containers. And then at the end of your, let's say, GVM, like at GVM termination, we were also instructing Docker to destroy the containers. So we didn't know what's going on. But then we realized that, okay, sometimes things crash. So your test session might crash, or you may just press this Q button on Jenkins where it will just terminate the job. And it will send Q-9 to the process which means that it won't execute any finalizers or I mean, various uh, platforms call them differently. But the idea is that you have no control of how to stop things. Yeah. And we've been thinking how to solve it. And then we figured that, okay, we have this abstraction ready for us. We can spawn child, not processes, but child containers that will be system containers. And that's what we did. We created a container called Ruk and Ruk is the name of a uh, god from a uh, Death Note manga. Okay. And, yeah, it's very geeky. It's super geeky. But <laughs> the idea is that he was responsible for making sure that everyone who got added to Death Note, like every name that got added, will eventually, uh, you know, pass away or will get killed <laughs> or something really bad will happen. Right. Like, it's, it's not the most positive manga out there. But, but it uh, sounds appropriate here. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect name. Indeed, indeed. So we created our own Death Note. We created this component, Ruk which is a Docker container implemented as Golang tiny application that would monitor a connection to the test session. And then when connection drops, be it because test session terminated or an executor crashed or something, it will wait for some duration of time. And if the time passed, then it will start pruning images, terminating containers and doing the cleanup. And ever since then, we never heard from our users who intentionally did not uh, disable about any dangling container issues. And it was something that uh, was easy to do because you have this imperative approach to testing, to running your tests and uh, everything. And I believe it would be much harder if your testing tool would be external, such as Docker Compose, for example, because you have no control of the testing session. There is no concept of test session Docker Compose because it's a generic tool. But right. we focus on testing and we can do these things. Yeah, definitely more of a, a blunt tool, blunt object tool for Compose. Mm-hmm. Is this something where it's designed to run locally? Let's talk about how Atomic mm-hmm. Jar is maybe taking that to the next level, I guess. That's when you, it's just when you want to call it. Like this, We're talking about r- code that I'm running locally on my machine when I'm developing. And of course, now one of my challenges, I'm on, on one of the new Apple M1s. One of my challenges is I keep working on projects that are still Intel or they're just, they're single platform and mm-hmm. I get lower performance on my M1 because it has to go through mm-hmm. QEMU emulation. And so I, I find myself nowadays actually looking more and more at cloud services to help me build because I'm realizing I'm going to have to build for multiple, you know, I'm going to have to basically teach every one of my customers, clients, students, how to build multiple platforms because now we're going to be living in this multi-platform world with AWS mm-hmm. Gravitons mm-hmm. and all these wonderful ARM devices. And I, I'm realizing I thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I thought I knew all this stuff already. But it turns out it's always you harder don't. to build multi-platform. Yeah. And let's talk about Atomic Jar. Okay. Ever since Richard created the project six years ago and I joined him five years ago, Test Containers was always Docker technology. And we always uh, were relying on Docker for good reasons. People were asking, like, why not Kubernetes? Why don't we want to support Kubernetes? Because it's extremely popular. And the answer was always that Kubernetes isn't ready for testing scenarios. Docker's API is so much better for what needs to be done for testing. And you can do crazy things with Docker, like, I know, 
you have control over networks. You can just create multiple networks, then start containers in these networks, then disconnect containers from these networks and check mm-hmm. what's going on with your system. That's how stream native folks, uh, they designed their chaos testing solution for Apache Bookkeeper, the underlying component of Apache Pulsar, to just run chaos testing on their machines. And that's just one of the examples why Docker is better for this. But we obviously understand that Docker is growing, still growing, growing fast, and Docker's adoption remains a question of availability. If someone uh, can run Docker or not, be it on local machine or on CI environments. And there are indeed cases where some of our users were able to run Docker on uh, their local machines because they have control of them, but then they push it to CI. They want to run the same test because it's part of their test seed. But their sysadmins were telling them that, oops, sorry, we cannot run Docker because it, it adds to the challenges of or to security question of our supply chain. Or the other way around, there is Docker on their Jenkins instances, but on their local Windows machines uh, that are running unprivileged users, they cannot run Docker or some other technologies they want to. And while we wanted to stick to Docker, we uh, start thinking, what can we do for our users to make their lives easier? And uh, we figured that since Docker is already a networking solution, or like solutions that you talk to over network, then it does not necessarily have to run on your machine. In fact, sometimes it's better when you run it somewhere remotely because then it becomes a question of, okay, if I'm connected to internet, then I'm connected to Docker. If I'm connected to Docker, I can run anything that needs Docker, such as task containers. And this specific example, we'll build it specifically for task containers. And that's the foundation of our product. We decided that, okay, instead of trying to figure out how to run Docker locally with all these privileges and everything, right. we, we would rather provide a managed service, Task Containers Cloud, for our users that would let them run their task containers-based tasks the same way they would do with local Docker, but with a remote one running somewhere close to them because we're also building an Ash platform, but that's a technical detail. Uh, but what matters is that you now can run Docker-based uh, tasks anywhere, including your Apple M1 machines, because that's not only the, like you mentioned that, and I'm not sure whether you read the announcement or not, because the product announcement literally starts with this one, because we, Atomic Jar, when we started the company, I was obviously one of the first employees, but the very first section of the announcements tells the story how I was struggling myself running <laughs> test yeah. containers on my own Apple M1 machine. And imagine the pressure on a team where your nearest milestone is to let your CEO run his tests on his own machine. So everything we did, every first step we did was focused on making sure that we can run our own tests because we started buying these Apple M1 machines. And that's just... Right. A, an example of where remote Docker could actually help with your uh, needs as a developer. That's funny. No, I did not read it. So this ex- it just so happens that for me, for those listening, we're going to actually have a best of tech. We kind of do a, like a wrap up show at the end of the year. And that's ARM M1s and like just the multi-platform revolution is one of my 2021 favorite things because like choice is always better, I feel like. And I've had the Raspberry Pis. Obviously, we have Apple's iOS devices are all ARM. I've had ARM devices in my life, but it's never been a day-to-day machine for me, right? <laughs> and as I start getting excited about Graviton and the potential cost savings in the cloud, and obviously these M1s are fantastic, and I don't have to listen to my jet fan noise over here on my yeah. laptop sounding like it's an inferno. So I'm just, I'm loving all of it, but it kind of speaks to how most developers today are not used to multi-platform building. We obviously, you and I live in the cloud native space and people are sort of defaulting to Go and Rust and you see the very same patterns and everybody's multi-platform. And those are the people that are building on ARM as an addition or if building on ARM first maybe, but the rest of the world has yet to catch up. So I'm constantly finding people where they get an M1 and they are surprised that things don't just work in Docker, right? They don't just work automatically. They kind of go into a degraded mode of performance, especially, de- it kind of depends on what container you're running. But I love that you are coming out of the gate right on the first announcements, like ARM is a problem, we're here to help, right? So mm-hmm. what else is in this? For us, it's even a bigger problem because for 
testing, you would like to use the same image you would be using in production. So for example, you would run MySQL 5.sound because that's the one you run in production. You cannot just upgrade to a newer version of MySQL that supports ARM because that would not be fair. That would not compare Apple to Apple to your production environment. And you would want to test with your production environment or at least yeah. production level dependencies or production versions of dependencies. There's always this challenge of making sure that you can run it and you run the right thing. And uh, yes, with Test Contains Cloud, we eliminate this problem because you're no longer limited by your local environment, be it ARM or Intel uh, CPU, or for example, maybe you have very little amount of resources on your machine. You're running on Raspberry Pi. You want to work on your project on Raspberry Pi while I know, traveling. And you still want to run your heavyweight tests that depend on containers, but obviously you cannot run them on Raspberry Pi. Well, with Test Contains Cloud, you can. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been working on a project this year that we're actually implementing, or I would say re-implementing testing across their code. And it's such a large code base that they have, I think, not even to 10% coverage. And it takes on just a single, if you just did a single system, a single server to run their test, I think it takes two, three hours. That's like oh, 95,000 wow. test runs or something. And that's just 10%. <laughs> so for them, it basically, you don't run tests locally. Like you can, there's some, a few mm -hmm. basic things you can do, but if you want to go beyond unit tests and, and stuff, whatnot, you are forced to use a cloud service or something that someone else built mm -hmm. that's not on your machine. Cause it's just going to mm -hmm. make your laptop a heater and you'll have to come back after, after half a day of, of waiting. So this yeah, is cool. And I also like to refer to this, like I'm, Netflix are using test containers and I always make a reference that why you should not start all your services at once in your testing scenarios. Because yes, when you have five services, you can do that even on your local machine because they would still require, I don't know, like 12 gigs of RAM, let's say. Right. But then when you're Netflix, when you have a gazillion of services, then obviously you would need an enormous amount of memory to start them. CPU, but also knowledge, like to know how to start all of them, it's almost impossible. I don't think someone can actually recreate Netflix deployment without production tooling, but you don't have to. And uh, for example, Martin Fobler, who talks about integration testing, he made a good point that integration testing does not need to be integrated testing, it can be narrow integration testing where you focus on the application under test like your service, let's say you develop user service and you don't need, I don't know, movie catalog when you develop user service or you develop movie catalog and then you don't need to start user service just to test the movie catalog. Yes, you may have some references to the user service, but instead of starting the service, you may as well use contract testing or just HTTP mocking for mocking the responses from that one so that you're not starting your whole fleet of uh, microservices. And uh, since there are dependencies, one depends on another, another, another. If you do that, you may end up just starting your whole fleet and then hitting uh, the limits of your uh, test environment. I'm curious. So by the way, since the announcement, people can sign up for early access for their beta for, of the cloud service. And is this something where I'm still running my app locally, but all of those other parts of it or all, like it's all spinning up in the cloud, but I'm still feeling local. Is that how the experience? Yes, that's the best part about it, that you don't need to submit your code to our cloud. You don't need to expose your implementation details or anything like that. The only thing you start in our cloud are your external dependencies. So you can think like MySQL, Kafka, Postgres, and others. But when you think about it, obviously you would not be using personal uh, PI <laughs> in your test because then why would you? You would obfuscate it at least. I know that some do, and we obviously are making sure that we have a decent isolation, like VM level isolation of workloads, and it's as safe as using public cloud. And we also be introducing options for more kind of security and privacy concerned customers in the future. But the good thing about doing something specifically for testing, especially for integration testing, is that you aren't that worried about um, the privacy of the information that is being sent to these containers because your code stays on your machine, your tasks stay on your machine. And then the only thing that goes into cloud is the containers and probably some queries that you send. But as I said, you get your own private environment, even with test containers, public cloud offering. So I would not be worried about it. We have a question about 
Is the application using a microservices architecture? If so, I think he means like the application that someone might be developing for. If so, can one simply test an individual service? I think it was a reference to your example where someone had a, a massive test seat with two to three uh, hours of execution time. Oh yeah, but yeah. What was it? Uh, was it the set of microservices? Well, it was no, it was not a microservice. It's a monolith. That's why a lot of the projects I'm on are sort of like we're jumping ten years in technology all at once, <laughs> kind of projects. Yeah. So this is a legacy Rails app and. Everything needs to be updated and testing needs to be further mm -hmm. implemented. So yeah, and ideally, one of the things we ended up using was a lot of Rails gems to basically split all the test up so we could just massive parallelize mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. so we have mm -hmm. to use cloud at that point. But yeah, I think at one point we were spinning up three uh, dozen AWS instances to run GitHub action runners just to mm -hmm. do that mm -hmm. one test so that you could get results back in 15 minutes rather than three hours. But it costs, it's like uh, $2,000 a month in hardware just to run tests for one repo. But yeah, once your project gets to be a decade old and mm -hmm. it's a very complicated monolithic product, it, that's kind of the problem you have. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that too. I've seen how CI costs may become bigger than the production cost. I'm, I'm yeah. sure for that application, it wasn't the case, but sometimes it is the case when people are paying more for their CIs than for their production environments. And on one hand, it is crazy. On the other hand, I can understand why, because you can actually optimize some developer experience by just putting more money into the process versus yeah. like hiring more developers, for example, because Nowadays, hiring is incredibly hard. And while, yes, obviously adding more developers helps sometimes, sometimes it makes things worse because now the team is bigger and need to more, <laughs> right. be more aligned. And um, sometimes just investing more money into your dev tools and into your dev setup is a solution and is the answer to the problem. And uh, we are still talking about like $2,000 per month, which is less than junior salary, which is absolutely nothing, but, <laughs> right. Yeah. But what I also wanted to say is that we started our episode with uh, the assumption that everyone is testing. And obviously, it isn't true, but I kind of make this joke about Atomic Jar is that I'm not sure if you watched that movie or not with Nicolas Cage uh, about him selling guns. And then it starts with uh, him saying like around 20% people in the world own guns. My job here is to make it 100%. So I'm trying to, yeah. I mean, so your job is or... replace yeah, guns with testing. All right. So maybe we can get yeah. that quote from him and just throw the word testing in it. That can be your motto. My job yeah, is to 100%. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of barriers to testing, but I think in my experience, it's a cultural issue. It's never, it's if testing is not a priority and, and you're not required to write tests, then people don't a lot of times. And it takes a champion stand up and say, yeah, we've got to have better test coverage. And I think for me, when we get down this rabbit hole of what does testing do and the pros and cons of the cost of testing versus just not doing, doing the cost of not having tests, is that every time I work with a team that tries to go faster, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times this container stuff to me as an operator was always about increasing speed, speed of deployment, speed of recovery, speed mm -hmm. of new releases, speed of testing, all those things, and reproducibility. There's all sorts of other benefits we can talk about. But to me, I think that they all enable speed. So if you have all this wonderful CI work that's automated and you basically, not so much CI, but the CD part, because teams also often talk about you know speeding up deployments. We want to be able to deploy many times a day. Well, that's great. And so what I often will see older teams do that maybe are leapfrogging in this journey of containers is they mm -hmm. will gloss over how much more they need testing because every time mm -hmm. they automate something that means a human didn't manually do something and that human doesn't necessarily mean that the humans are better at it or the computers are better at it but it means that we can screw things up even faster and they often screw up without our awareness because we're not literally clicking the buttons anymore and so what i see a lot of teams doing is that they automate deployments they do docker and kubernetes they automate their docker builds if they're not adding even more testing even testing their apps in Kubernetes or whatever their ultimate thing is they're running containers in in production. Mm -hmm. And they don't put the effort into that until everything just starts to fall apart. And then they start—they actually start breaking things faster, but they can't recover from those because they don't have good tests to even help them troubleshoot or, yeah. I think testing is one of those things where if you don't do it now, you're gonna regret it eventually. And it may be such a huge problem like it is for some of my clients. It's such a huge mm -hmm. problem to fix because now there's so much code written that mm -hmm. it seems insurmountable. 
I guess uh, testing is very similar to backups. Like you either not doing them yet or already doing it because uh, you had some incident in yeah. the past and you regretted about it. But uh, yeah, for me, the biggest value of testing, automated testing, isn't just the fact that I can run them today, but the fact that some assumptions that I put into my code and verified them with tests will survive future modifications because regressions is what often happens. And unless you have automated testing and good coverage, you yeah. would never know that something that worked today would work tomorrow, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, and I had a really good boss in operations over a decade ago, 15 years ago, that instilled in me the idea that, at least in operations, things only get to fail once without us mm -hmm. being aware of it. If, if we knew about that failure when it happened or shortly thereafter, fine. But if it happened and the users had to notify us, right, the user-based mm -hmm. testing, then it was our fault, essentially. Mm -hmm. He would put blame on the team in general and say, okay, now we will be notified of that. That's your job now is to make a, to make a new monitoring endpoint, a new event tracking, a new some logging event thing or whatever it needs to be in operations. And I see that happen what I, I sometimes see is that's not necessarily the case in code where, oh, we just had this page load fail. Why isn't there a test capturing that? Like, why did we have mm -hmm. to find out that after testing? And does that, be, instead of having it be a bug to fix the actual code, it should have been a bug ticket to, to actually write a test mm -hmm. <laughs> to detect mm -hmm. it first. And mm -hmm. that's a culture thing to me. It's so much a culture mm -hmm. thing. So it's great to see tools like this that are giving us more options for testing because not everyone's wanting to live their life in a Docker Compose file all day long or to figure out bash scripts for mm -hmm. pull, you know, running an NPM test that actually runs other scripts like startup or seed my data for my test and stuff like that. Or even to learn Docker because like you're Docker captain, I'm not. So uh, I can say that sometimes not learning or letting more people use Docker without learning it is also a good thing uh, because well, not a good thing, but like a good start, because then eventually they will start like asking themselves like how this thing work, but then removing this kind of gap between them not knowing anything about Docker and then using Docker is a big challenge actually. And with test containers, we can now say that a junior developer could, I don't know, create a test environment with Oracle database, with Kafka, with I know local stack for Amazon S3 and DynamoDB and a couple of other uh, services. And 10 years ago, when someone would say that, he or she would be considered you know, like a bit crazy, I believe, because <laughs> junior developer setting up all these dependencies, right. no way he or she could done it in just a matter of uh, hours, not talking days, but like hours. Right. Uh, just insane. But with uh, test containers, this is all code. You just new MySQL container and you're good to go. New Kafka container, boom. New generic container, Redis, and you have Redis from some random Docker image uh, that you discovered right. on Docker Hub. You don't need right. to know how to do this Docker run commands, how Docker works even, and you don't need to worry about what happens if I don't stop this container? What happens if I have port conflicts because Test containers will take care of it. They will take care of it. It will start everything on random ports. It will make sure the container is up and running with some advanced strategies that sometimes may also look into logs because sometimes some port may be listening, but the container may not be ready yet. All right. that is part of test containers and what makes it unique and uh, so helpful. Yeah, I think coming into this as an operator where I'm used to running all that other infrastructure, I, I, I think I tend to downplay the level of complexity of just simply getting a local containers obviously is tends to make things easier for local development right but at the mm -hmm. same time i know all those tools because i've had to use them for years and someone who's developing like you're saying developing on node or go or whatever may not be the same person who knows how to set up all these infrastructure components for local use if it is indeed this simple <laughs> where i can just say right, create mm -hmm. me a redis this is the port get a port do some things that really speaks to me for helping developers because I know the workflow. I have to do it a thousand times. You go to Docker Hub, you try to find the image, then you read the readme on how to get that image to work. And then you try to shove it into a compose file, but their compose examples mm -hmm. are never quite right. So you have to massage it and learn even more. And then you probably have to go refer to some documentation like, oh, I need Redis to actually maintain my queue and not just throw mm -hmm. it away every time I restart the container. So there's all these little things so you're days into it and you still haven't ran one test. <laughs> yes. 
Good luck writing Kafka with Docker Compose, by the way, because yeah. the way Kafka works is that it needs to know its port before starting. And the thing is, if you use it with Docker Compose, then you would use fixed ports and then you write it on CI and five other projects are running at the same time and you get port conflicts and your tests fail. Or you already have Kafka running on your laptop and you want to run tests from some other project from your company, you would end up with this issue. While uh, with test containers, since we are imperative, we are part of your code, we can actually start things and modify something and only then return to you. We can start Kafka on random port and then make sure that Kafka knows about the random port before returning it to the user, which is another great advantage of this approach where your container testing becomes a library and not just an external tool with some YAMLs. Yeah. A lot of this, like everything, starts with culture, starts with a, a better culture, but also we've got lots of tools here and not everyone not everyone wants to spend their life in YAML. There, we've had on this show before as well, Pulumi, which does infrastructure mm -hmm. as code, true code, not infrastructure as YAML, mm -hmm. but writing in your own language for building out like your production systems, not necessarily related to your scenario, but if someone on gravitate to, I just want to stick with my language. I, I really don't want to have to learn a dozen tools so, just so that I can develop in my own language. And I, I know I have several friends that are, they're dev first, they're all day long. I just want my language. I don't want to see YAML. Mm -hmm. So we have all these little uh, projects out there, like the, the Pulumi project. And now we have test containers. Mm -hmm. So at least I'm learning about it. It's been here for a while. So I, I take it. So there's a couple of options, right? The people get started by going and finding their language on, this is actually a question, sorry, mm -hmm. going on GitHub and finding their language of choice, or maybe does it better to go, is there like a walkthrough in the help? So for test containers, Java, which is our primary project, and then there are a bunch of like language forks, so-called. So for test containers, Java, for example, you can start with a quick start on the left side for your favorite testing framework. So for example, if you were to use JUnit 4 or JUnit 5 or any other Java framework, because we are not specific about it, but like it gives you a brief overview of what it takes to use test containers. And uh, there is also enormously massive amount of information out there by external authors who write about test containers. We never had an issue of someone not finding information of how to start with test containers because you'll find some very famous developer advocates from I don't know, Google, Elastic, and many other companies talking about test containers because for them, it is also a way to just delegate the question of testing to someone else because their products. So let, let, let's talk about Elastic and Elasticsearch. To test Elasticsearch, you need to start it. To start it, you either need to run it with the Java versions that they depend on. If you want to start this embedded Elasticsearch, you need to take care of certain things. You need to tune some parameters, or you can just use test containers and it's Elasticsearch module, and then it's new Elastic container and Elasticsearch container good to go. And um, for vendors, it's just so much easier to delegate to a generic solution that people we need to adopt once so imagine a company, big company, instead of adopting embedded Elasticsearch, embedded Postgres, embedded Kafka, embedded what's not, they just adopt a single tool that comes with a single requirement, make sure that you have Docker running and you're good to go. And this is a deal breaker for decision-making here because then it's a single decision to support every integration testing scenario or with the assumption that it works with Docker, but most <laughs> right. of it just now work with Docker. Right. Yeah. I think we've gotten over the hump of, does it work with Docker at this point? For sure. <laughs> so they're looking at the documentation, they're picking their code, their sort of the, their library that they're going to use. And then you just start writing. You said it was test framework agnostic, right? It's like, it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter what framework you're just going to be writing in your native code anyway, to spin those off. So, well, what is coming next? Do you got anything coming up? So obviously we got the early access for Atomic Jars test container cloud, but what else is coming for test containers? Yeah, the feature of test containers is basically a test containers platform, go-to solution for every developer out there who is willing to start testing their services. And we will make sure that we have the right tools for doing that. We are developers. We've been doing uh, testing for many years. Richard has been doing it for over a decade and a couple of other team members as well, which uh, means that we understand the needs of developers and we focus on developers here. There's a bunch of companies out there who focus on QA teams, for example, or let's just recreate production environment from Kubernetes. But 
I'm a developer, I've been talking to developers, and I think it's common sense that developers don't want to recreate production environments. What they want to, they want to run their tasks. And recreate production environments is just one of the approaches. May not be the best because they also need to understand Kubernetes, how it works, and how to um, stitch everything together. Right. While we are focusing on two things, making sure that there are the right tools for the job and educating uh, everyone how to do uh, integration testing properly with the tools that we provide, but not only because there's a bunch of other great tools out there for various languages. And with, uh, with this will come hopefully a new era of software that's being written with testing in mind. And we are here to make it easier, much easier. Cool. Got a good question. Does test containers work with other container runtimes than Docker? It works with Podman. The, uh, it's a question of Podman's Docker API compatibility mm -hmm. because they are, it's a compatibility layer. And obviously, like such layers sometimes are lacking coverage for some of the things. But for example, our friends at Red Hat, they are running uh, their tests with Podman pretty successfully. There are some issues here and there. But the thing is, and that's what makes it easier for us, is that test containers is based on Docker. And then as long as you have something that can talk Docker protocol, you're good to go. Be it uh, right. Podman, I think Lima are working mm -hmm. on something for that, for Docker API compatibility, but that's the API we chose. And uh, hopefully um, the community will come up with more standardized API for containers. There is container D, but it's currently focused on kind of production needs. While what I would like to see is uh, something like Docker API, but not being a part of some product, but rather a generic API described with, I know, something like like I know, Swagger definition that's right. being shared between Podman, Docker, and any other technology, including Kubernetes, because ideally we should be able to talk Docker protocol to Kubernetes, just we cannot, but hopefully one day we can. Yeah, and related to that question, you mentioned Lima, and Lima is actually another project run by some of the Docker maintainers, including Akihiro, which if you've not seen him, he makes some of the most iconic Docker PRs ever. Like one of my favorites is yep. that he implemented yep. SSH remote support into Docker. So now you can connect to a Docker mm -hmm. engine on another system through SSH. But he has a project called Lima, which has gotten a lot of attention now that not everyone can run Docker desktop due to licensing requirements that is trying to make it easier to run container D, which Docker also uses in the background to run all your containers anyway, and to just use container D directly. Yeah, that would be interesting if they added support for it to be a little bit more compatible with test containers, because I think a lot of us are wanting, again, love choice, love to have options, and not everyone can use commercial software. So I'm very interested in the major releases. In fact, I need to have someone from that project on the show so we can get an update. As 2022 gets into action and we now start looking at things like lima which just was an idea i think it's a year old maybe and uh, an idea on running container d making it easier essentially to run container d locally <laughs> and then there's obviously things like rancher desktop which is also doing kubernetes locally and i was just actually explaining this to someone today because they were setting up they didn't want to use docker desktop for kubernetes i think because there was a the conflict like a permissions problem or something that they, they mm -hmm. couldn't get around so they were looking to run kubernetes locally simply to recreate, like you said, these production-like environments or something. And they already had all the Helm charts they needed. They just needed a way to run Kubernetes and they didn't have remote stuff. So they were looking up all these ways and their go-to, which for most developers, if they're not into the, a lot of this stuff for local dev and test, their go-to was to just create a VirtualBox VM or a Parallels VM or a VMware VM, whatever, on their local VM provider, install Ubuntu server, and then use that. And that per person actually knew about the other things I'm going to mention, but I was, I give them this big old long list. I'm like, here's all the other ways you could do this. It may save you a lot of time, like multipass, mm -hmm. which is a great way to run a oh, yeah. local Ubuntu VM. So those that are, are listening in, if you're looking at some of these alternatives, just how to start a container, how do I get Kubernetes or Docker running locally without the current setup, look at multipass, which doesn't have really anything to do with Docker or Kubernetes, but it is, I think, the easiest way to start a local Ubuntu VM. And then there's Rancher Desktop, which is basically like K3s or keys locally with a nice little GUI for setup and configuration. And it manages it for you. So you don't have to install your own Kubernetes and you don't have to have 
a VM even. It just it creates it for you and does all that. So maybe people can check those out. I wish Multipass received more attention because I find it really nice too. I've been using it when I was recording video of how to use test containers with rootless Docker. And uh, yeah. I needed an environment to experiment with. And I just went for uh, you know, a VM created with Multipass with Ubuntu and then I was good to go. So really nice too. And um, I'm really looking forward to the Docker compatibility being added to Lima because we wrote an article on our blog on atomicjar.com comparing various options of running Docker on uh, Mac and Windows so for our task continuous users. And we've been looking at Minikube, at uh, Docker Machine, at Docker Desktop, of course. And uh, we've been missing more options. And it's great to see that more options are coming. So maybe we should write part two just to give more insights into alternatives. Yeah. All right. So we haven't mentioned, by the way, you're on Twitter, so people can follow you on Twitter. And is that where people can reach out to you if they have questions on test containers? Yeah, I believe or my Twitter the, is the best place to reach out because I'm very active on Twitter and I promise to be tweeting some technical stuff, uh, not just uh, company related. And uh, yeah, please reach out. I have my DMs open. Feel free to send me a question. Happy to answer. And we all have a very vibrant test containers community. You'll find a lot of hubs there on testcontainers.org. There is a section of how to get help and there's a link to slack to our github discussions to stack overflow and you know there's a lot of folks from the community just helping each other because that's how it should be doing that's what we want to create a community of same-minded developers who are into integration testing and obviously the best solution for integration testing is containers and here how we help yeah Getting help. I like that you have a page, getting help. <laughs> I think that's the most important page for every open source project. That's how open source projects should start when they get open source, like for you, not just you know putting sources on GitHub, but when you start creating your open source community, make sure that getting help is the first thing people see because it isn't the first thing people see on our page, by the way, but at least there is a section on uh, the homepage. But yeah, I think yeah. that's a, that would be a good advice. Well, great. I'm excited to hear about the, the GitHub discussions because I'm just starting to try those out. I'm pretty new to them. So I'm going to have to check those out. Well, thank you so much, Sergey, for being on the show and teaching me some about test containers because I keep hearing it around the world as I travel and people have been mentioning it for a while now and I have not had a chance to use it. So now you're giving me an excuse to. Anyway, well, thank you again so much for being on the show and thanks and good luck with Atomic Jar and the release, the, the coming soon release of your testing containers cloud and thank you all for joining thank you so much brett it was a very enjoyable experience thanks so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode mm -hmm.